When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Blood Podcast I'm your host, Neo Grio, and this is episode number 155 It's September the 23rd, 2023 And the overall title for the episode this week is a quote from actually Dante And uh, that quote is, if the present world go astray, the cause is in you. In you, it should be sought. And that's a Dante allegory. And uh, let's get to the agenda and I'll give you a bit uh, more information on why I selected that as the overall title, especially considering that it is a quote from uh, a fairly prominent um, historical Christian. So let's get to the agenda. But before we get start, uh, get started, if you would like to provide some feedback on the show, uh, please send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll be sure to read your comments on the air. Um, and now one other bit of housekeeping. I'm feeling a bit under the weather today. So if my voice sounds different or if the level of intensity of the podcast is a little off, that's uh, that's the reason. All right, so let's get to that agenda. First of the reason for the overall um, title of the episode this week is because it is related to the um, uh, the what's what I'm going to talk about in the segment. What's on my mind, which is first up today, and the title of the segment, what's on my mind, is we are in already in hell. And essentially, what I want to talk about is the fact that uh, Dante. Um, uh, when he wrote, um, his, um, uh, epic, uh, the divine comedy. And when he was talking about, uh, the infernal section, which was his description of hell, it really was not, uh, specifically a religious text. He instead wrote about the political and religious, um, uh, activities that were going on that during his time and what he thought about them. And so uh, many of the individuals that he talked about in the Inferno as being in hell were individuals both alive and dead that he disagreed with. And so I am going to use the structure of Dante's Inferno uh, to compare it as Dante did then to our uh, political life today. So after the segment, what's on my mind, we'll get to the news. And first up in the news, um, in quoting 
a uh, Republican about his own party. I'm using what he said as the title of that story. This is stupidity. And next up, uh, as it relates to the police and providing more police on the streets in order to lower crime, I am just titling this segment, So This Is What We Want More Of. And then, uh, or so we want more of this uh, is the actual title. And then in the next story, a similar vein, so we want more of this too. And then after that, um, a story where the defense to murder was they're not dead, they're zombies. And then last up in the news, I'm just calling the story as judged by whom. Uh, Someone has said that a certain segment of the population was inarticulate And I am asking the question as judged by whom. After that, we'll get to the segment. This shit is for us. And um, the title of the episode this week is when people become things. And then after that, we'll have a Bible study with Atheist Mike. And the uh, and the lesson for today is the logic of the illogical. And then after that, uh, we'll close out uh, with a segment I'm just calling uh, Power Behind the Throne. So that's what we have on our agenda for today. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment, What's On My Mind. All right, welcome back and welcome to the segment, What's On My Mind, where each week I give you that, just what's been on my mind since the last episode. And for some reason, Dante's Divine Comedy was on my mind. Um, Not that I have to admit that I've ever really read it in its entirety. Uh, I started to read it and I got about maybe quarter or a third of the way through. Uh, But the medieval language and the sheer length of the thing kind of dissuaded me from continuing. That being said, I have read a lot about the poem and summaries of it, uh, and I have analyzed parts of it um, as well, especially in uh, Dante's description of the Inferno, and that is what I want to talk about today. Now, in Dante's uh, epic, The Rings of Hell in his Inferno, uh, I want to reinterpret um, them for today's world. Um, and to be honest, though, of course, it's more than just a reinterpretation or an interpretation of da- as Dante, uh, because since he was a Christian and he was trying to write something that presented his faith uh, in a light that would um, gender greater acceptance and respectability. Uh, and of course, I'm not going to do that. Uh, however, uh, Dante didn't really write, as I have said in the intro, the Divine Comedy from the perspective of religion only. It was more of a, a political uh, commentary uh, and a uh, really a character assassination of people that Dante disagreed with politically. So let's go on. Dante Allegory's uh, Divine Comedy is a seminal work of medieval literature deeply rooted in the religious and moral climate of the 14th century. However, its themes transcend the era, era, offering a framework for understanding of the human condition that is strikingly irrelevant in 2023. This segment uh, that we're going to go through today will examine the infernal Uh, a portion of the Divine Comedy, and comparing its rings of hell to contemporary issues. Um, And I'm going to do that, of course, from a a progressive and uh, an atheist and a rationalist point of view. 
Now, my interpretation will show that it is the white Christian nationalist uh, right on the right that is bringing about the hell on earth that we are experiencing today. And as always, they are the ones that commit the crimes against humanity that Dante discussed as a reason uh, for the nine rings of hell. So Dante Allegory was uh, uh, was born in Florence, uh, Italy, in 1265, uh, in a society deeply entrenched in Catholicism. Uh, his exile from Florence uh, and his political dis- disillusionment and his personal losses informed the Divine Com- Comedy, which is a three-part epic, uh, and it's allegorically representing the soul's journey toward God. Uh, though an allegory in nature, the work also served as a critique of the political and moral shortcomings of his time, and that is what I want to use it for today. Uh, that since and that last part, that is the the uh, a critique of the political and moral shortcomings of his time, is what I want to draw on the uh, inferno to do the same thing to critique the political and moral shortcomings of America in 2023. So let's review then the nine rings or levels of hell, according to Dante, and examine how they resonate with what we are experiencing in modern society. So first off is the entrance to hell, which is called limbo. And limbo uh, is where those who never knew uh, Christ exist in Dante's in Dante's story. And Dante encounters several people like Ovid, Homer, Socrates, Aristotle, Julius Caesar, and more. And from a metaphorical perspective, limbo is where one has a chance to contemplate their lives and to make adjustments that can either lead to paradise or further down the path of hell. And so limbo is symbolized by a lack of spiritual salvation to Dante, but it also reflects today's um, educational inequalities, barriers to intellectual progress as, as well, and also as alternative facts and falsehoods masquerading as truth based on, quote, a sincerely held belief. And so the ability to transcend the state of limbo um, is curtailed by those facts, but by things like um, the alternative facts and truth based on so-called sincerely held beliefs, which would say that um, uh, that the truth uh, is uh, is simply subjective and it depends upon what someone uh, really believes. That is not true. That it, the truth is is that there is an objective reality. Uh, but limbo is what we are are presenting a lot of our youth in today uh, as they are required to give as much credit to scientific fact uh, as they are to uh, biblical regurgitated nonsense. Now, MAGA Republicans, as I stated before, are either stupid, which means they're incapable of knowing the truth, willfully ignorant, which means they're capable of knowing the truth, but purposely believe a lie, or they're evil, which means they know the truth, but they speak lies for money or power. Now, the last group is not in limbo. That is, they know the truth. But the first two are in limbo because they are entrenched either due to their inability or because of their refusal, and they will continue down the path of hell if they are not able to either uh, break free. That uh, and and to do that, I, I mean, for someone that is stupid, there's only so far they can go. But the willfully ignorant uh, is the prime occupant of the uh, realm or the circle uh, of limbo. They can choose to make a different choice and to start to believe the truth. 
So the second circle of hell in Dante's record um, is lust, and it represents uncontrolled desire. And today it resonates with unrestrained consumerism, a relentless pursuit of materialistic pleasure at this expense of long-term being or long-term well-being. At its core, the lust uh, at, at this level is about, again, unrestrained power. And when we hear Trump say things like Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the power to do whatever he wants. And when we see the Republican political willing, Republicans, politicians, willingness to overthrow the Constitution to stay in power, we see that in 2023, the the group that is most aligned with the so-called sin of lust are white Christian nationalist Republicans. The rise of the billionaire caste, the destruction of the middle class, and the widening of the gap between the rich and the poor is an attribute of Republican policies. It is a feature, not a bug, and this shit did not start with Trump. Reagan's trickle-down economics is the same thing in a different cover. Instead of a rising tide lifting all ships, their mantra is, buy the rich a 300-foot mega yacht and a a G7 jet and let the poor uh, get jobs serving the rich. That is uh, what it means in this circle of lust. Now, lust is exemplified in the drill, baby, drill attitude that destroys the earth for future uh, for future generations while enriching a small segment of the population in this generation. Depletion of the ozone layer, poisoning of all of our waterways and lands and extinction of species is all seen as a valid price to play for luxury and an influence of a mere pittance or small part of society today. Lust blinds the eyes of the luster, and all they can see is their own comfort. The millions millions that die in the gutter mean mean absolutely nothing to them. Now, where I somewhat differ from what Dante was saying, though, and this will be true throughout um, this um, allegory, is that no God is able to help this situation. We need um, humanity, and as humanity, we need to prioritize people over things. We need to throw off the ideologies that perpetuate lust, including, in fact, all religions. And number three is gluttony. And in Dante's poem, uh, this third circle is where sinners lie rotting away in never ending icy rain over rain overlooked by a worm monster, uh, Cerebrus. Um, and in today's world, this symbolizes uh, contemporary ecological degradation caused by overconsumption. This overconsumption is best exemplified um, by the billionaire class uh, that we talked about before. Uh, they have everything, but they constantly want more. The individuals that consume to the detriment of society simply because they can. Any one of the billionaires on this planet uh, for which there are now, uh, as of the last counting, 3,194 could solve the problems of homelessness or world hunger, but they don't because they don't want to. They would rather have mega yachts and private planes, and they, even though they could solve the problems and still have plenty left over to buy whatever they wanted, uh, they also want to be the richest just so that they can say they are. 
And this is also related to ring number four, which is greed. And you can see the a theme forming on these. And so the fourth circle then tackles greed, aligning with modern income inequality and the concentration of wealth among a few, again, the billionaire class. As you can see, many of Dante's circles are related to or overlapping. Lust and gluttony are both related to greed and are just variants of how greed shows up in a person's life. In the poem, the inhabitants of this circle drag about heavy weights and boulders with their chest all the time at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And um, in the poem, and, and in today's world, this greedy, uh, the greedy work tirelessly to increase the wage and wealth divides, the greedy work to live uh, large in the backs of others. And in Dante's metaphor, their reward will be to constantly work for nothing. It is not only that the rich are greedy, however, they are, there are those that are poor as well, but who buy into the lie of the rich and believe that they can be rich someday. So they support the greedy and the destruction of the rest of the world. MAGA Republicans who support Donald Trump uh, or his fascist view of the world because they falsely believe that he would let them into the authoritarian ruling class or such people. Both Trump and these MAGA maggots are on their way to a figurative hell. Number five in the circle is anger, and the wrathful fight each other in this in Dante's poem on the surface of the river Styx. Uh, this is further uh, progression in Dante's um, evaluation of the nature of sin, and he also begins to question himself and his own life in the poem, poem realizing that his actions and nature could lead him to be uh, to or could lead him to this permanent torture. So Dante's fifth circle devoted to wrath reflects the divisiveness and discord rooted in hate and bigotry today, and we see it in the vitriol in today's politics. Those on both the right and the left hate each other, but they are not the same. The right hates everybody uh, that is not white Christian male, including those in their own party. The Republican platform is based on perceived grievances and hatred. The politics on the right have moved from a center-right view of democracy to a power-at-all-cost authoritarianism. This is what causes disrespectful outbursts during State of the Union speeches. It is what caused a riotous mob to attack the Capitol, and it is what has led to politically motivated violence, including the mass shootings of black people in in several incidents just in the past 12 months. And that leads uh, to uh, circle six, which is heresy. And of course, heresy is considered to be a religious crime, but um, it has always meant more than that as well. Uh, And in Dante's mind, heresy included the rejection of both not just religious, but also political norms. Heresy was and is about the rejection of the standard of knowledge. It is about deviating from common sense and logic. Of course, Dante was wrong in in that he was a Christian, but during his time, the leading thinkers were, in fact, religious, albeit their experiments continually pushed them to be on the wrong side of the church. The Sixth Circle accommodates heretics echoing the uh, current era's flood of misinformation that we have today and fake news. This is a level of anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists, which many are now part of the core of the Republican Party. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, as an example, who who started out as a QAnon conspiracy theorist and then got elected to the House of Representatives. Republicans reject the truth and spew lies. Ron DeSantis's exhortation that slavery was was just a skills training program is an example of heresy in this day and age. Then we get to number seven, which is violence. Um, and in and according to Dante, this is the first circle that can be that can be further subdivided into subcircles or rings. And there are three of them: the outer, the middle, and the inner rings, housing different types of violent cr- criminals. The outer are the murderers um, sinking into boiling blood. The middle are the suicides who are turned into bleeding trees. And the inner ring are blasphemers who reside in a desert of burning sand and are scorched by burning rain falling from above. Now, this circle includes mostly religious imagery, but can be extended to include corresponding secular attributes. Violence at its core is reflected in systemic injustices, from racial discrimination to gender-based violence. Suicide is reflected in the denial of global warming, which dooms the denier as well as the rest of us to death. The main philosophy of the right is the denial of truth that puts us all in danger. In addition to denying global warning, they deny the history of slavery. They deny rape and other assaults against women. They deny the complexities of gender. They and they deny racial equality. They deny all of that. And all of these denials are like suicide bombers. They kill not only the objects of their hate, but uh, and and of their denial, but they kill themselves in the process as well. And the penultimate um, uh, level or circle is number eight, fraud. And this circle is distinguished from its predecessors by being made up of those who consciously and willingly commit fraud. So it wasn't just a a matter of being in error. And within the eight circle is another uh, called the um, melabalage or evil pockets, which house 10 separate uh, balages, which are ditches. In these exist types uh, of those who commit fraud. Um, it's adulterers and seducers, flatterers, um, and those who sell ecclesiastical preferment. That is when they when they are able to sell uh, forgiveness, as an example. Sorcerers, astrologers, false prophets, um, beraters, uh, corrupt politicians, and hypocrites, thieves, false counselors and um and schemers etc and so and to me the move this eighth circle deals with fraud similar to the political corruption and the media manipulation manipulation scene today uh this uh this is the move to authoritarianism and is the selling of the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. This also includes the big lie of racial inferiority and the lie that you can tell someone's gender by simply looking at their genitals like they were a damn puppy. The Republican Party is based on lies. Everything that they do is fraud, and the fact that they that the the white Christian nationalists make up a solid core of the Republican Party is no accident because the white Christian nationalist religions are also based upon fraud and selling lies. And so that takes us to the final uh, level of Dante's hell, which is treachery. And the betrayers are struck frozen in a lake of ice, and the lake consists of four rings, with the last level resided by Lucifer, Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. 
So this ninth uh, circle designated for traitors symbolizes the erosion of democracy and the betrayal of human rights worldwide. This also includes the race traders, in my opinion, that have sold out the black community for their own personal gain. If you look at the Republican Party through the lens of loyalty, you see that loyalty has been corrupted to mean false fealty to a demagogue. There are no loyalty. There is no loyalty to the people. The only thing that matters in Republican politics today is blind loyalty to Trump, regardless of how many lies he tells and crimes he commits. In their mind, he must be supported to the end, and that is to the end of the Republican Party, the end of democracy, and the end of the universe as we know it. He must be supported even if everything else must die. Republicans' grassroots, as well as the leadership, is willing to burn every fucking thing to the ground in their effort to stay loyal to Trump. Which brings us to uh, not a level of hell, but where we find ourselves in Dante's poem, and that is the core. So Dante's core is occupied by Satan, uh, symbolizing ultimate evil or abuse of power. Today, this is exemplified by authoritarian regimes and a concentration of power undermining democratic principles. Whether Satan in this sense is symbolized by Trump, DeSantis, Pence, or others is debatable. They are all interchangeable in the effect that they have had and will continue to have on the world. All are creating or trying to create hell on earth. All include attributes of each circle of Dante's Inferno. All must be resisted if we are to be able to circumvent the Inferno and use this time in our purgatory to find our way to paradise. This, it, that is the, 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 to make this earth what it should be, it would be, uh, where, uh, over uh, a world dedicated to people over profits and people over things. Paradise is about creating a world where every individual can reach their maximum potential and use that potential to the benefit of others. Individual exceptionalism is a lie, and, and it, it is only by looking out for one another that we will convert the inferno that we find ourselves in to the paradise that it could be. So in conclusion, Dante's Inferno provides an allegorical framework still relevant for criticizing or critiquing the human condition in 2023. Interpreted from a progressive and secular standpoint, the epic implies or implores us to confront and address our modern societal flaws. It asks us to close uh, or to close our ears to the Syrian song of power for power's sake and to set our objective as raising the condition of us all. It is not about our own personal pleasure. It is about creating a world that will not only sustain, but elevate the condition of our children and their children and on and on and on into the unimaginable future. This means that we must take severe and pronounced action now, not tomorrow. We need to take it today in order to, in, to prevent the inferno from becoming permanent. All right, that is it for this week's segment of What's On My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll cover the news. All right, welcome back. 
and welcome to the news. Um, before we get started, I do want to make one announcement there. I am recording on uh, Thursday afternoon, and there has been some uh, pretty interesting and compelling news that has broke um, after um, I had started recording, primarily around some um, comments that uh, General Milley has made regarding his time uh, as uh, joint uh, our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Trump administration. And that's something that I will save for next week. Uh, but I uh, just wanted to note that a lot of the things that he is saying are directly related uh, to some of the things that I'm going to talk about this week, but I would, will want to expand that next week. But case in point, this first story that I want to talk about is I uh, just titled, This is Stupidity. So I've just talked about Dante uh, Alighieri's uh, epic poem, Divine Comedy, uh, especially the section on hell called the Inferno. And I've talked about how it was an allegory for both the religious and political issues of his day. And I used his rings or circles of hell to evaluate today's political realities and came to the conclusion, uh, a conclusion that today's Republican Party is creating a hell on earth. Just as Dante thought that the players of his day were creating um, a, a hell and deserved to be in hell, the fir this first story uh, this week provides an assessment by one of these Republicans of his own party. So here's the story. In the last, uh, in the, the in the latest sign at Speaker Kevin McCarthy's Republican conference is rupturing. Uh, U.S. Uh, Representative Mike Lawler, a freshman Republican from New York, slammed his fellow House Republicans as, quote, lunatics, end quote, and, quote, a clown show. And their actions are hurling toward a shutdown of the federal government, quote, stupidity, end quote. Now, those words were from a member of the party uh, itself uh, who's directed his words to his own party, the Republican Party. He is basically saying that the Republican Party is full of stupid clowns, and that's for per Mike Lawler, a Republican uh, uh, congressman. So the article goes on, Congressman Lawler was responding to new speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, was being forced to cancel a procedural vote on a critical legislation to help keep the federal government open after the midnight of September the 30th deadline. Because different factions among the House Republicans are making wide ranging demands, most of which will not pass the Senate, a vote had been scheduled for Tuesday to allow debate on the Defense Department appropriations bill, and some House Republicans, including Matt Gates, want to remove any funding for Ukraine from the bill. And so Lawler said, quote, this is not conservative republicanism. This is stupidity, end quote. And he said, quote, the idea that we're going to shut down the government because we don't control the Senate, we don't control the White House, these people can't define a win. They don't know when to take yes for an answer, end quote. And he also said it is a clown show. And he, and he said that you keep running lunatics. And I think this is an important point. Quote, you keep running lunatics. You're going to be in this position, end quote. So he said, if you keep running lunatics, then this is what you're going to get. Now, the problem is, is that the leader of the party, Donald Trump is a lunatic, as are most of the House and the significant percentage of the voters. To paraphrase another analogy, 
it is lunatics all the way down. We are no longer in an era of political debate and compromise. We are in an era of win or kill everybody to win. The path that we are on is leading to a figurative hell. We are on the path of the annihilation of everything good and decent in the world. We are destroying our chances to survive. And it is the right that is leading that charge into the abyss of ignorance and stupidity per one of their own. All right, let's go on to the next story. And I am titling this one. So we want more of this. Now, as I have discussed numerous times, Joe Scarborough of MSNBC's Morning Joe fame has a hard on for police. He loves them. He constantly talks in a way that shows that he believes that anyone that says, quote, defund the police, end quote, is a fool and a criminal. He has literally said that no one in their right mind thinks that it is that defunding the police is an answer. And he has said that the only answer to the problems of rising crime is more police on the streets. So think about that as we go through this next story and see if you agree with Joe Scarborough. Quote, two former East Cleveland, Ohio police officers were sentenced this week for stealing thousands of dollars from people they pulled over during traffic stops. A judge ordered Willie Sims, 32, to two years in prison Thursday on Thursday, and his partner Alfonso Cole, 35, was sentenced on Monday to two and a half years in prison and fined $40,000, court records show. In, in total, Sims and Cole stole $14,781 from six victims from July the 20th to, uh, from July 2020 to July 2021 while on duty, prosecutors said. Cole also swiped two firearms from the victims, the Cuyahoga County prosecutor's office said in a news release. So Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Michael Russo told Sims that his actions, quote, have, quote, dis disgraced hardworking officers, end quote. Quote, the one person that the public should be able to have confidence in would be your emergency service, your police officers, your firefighters, your EMTs, Russo said. You have shaken the confidence of the public in the criminal justice system and the trust they put in police officers, end quote. Well, the two men were arrested on July 9th, 2021, one day after a motorist reported to the East Cleveland uh, Police Department that the police officers took 4000 during a traffic stop at a gas, gas station. The news, uh, the victim was supposed to give a statement in court Thursday, but prosecutors said that he had changed his mind because he feared becoming a target. The 21-year-old man said that he was on his way to a funeral home to pay for his mother's services when the officers robbed him. Now, I'm sure that Joe would say that these guys are exceptions and to the rule and that the vast majority of officers actually help people. But is this true? Sim, and this is back to the article. Sims and Cole's arrest are connected to a wider investigation in the East Cleveland Police Department for corruption, NBC affiliate WKWC. Uh, or YC of Cleveland reported. More than a dozen uh, current and former officers have been charged with various crimes, including the former police chief, Scott Gardner, who was accused of fraud, theft, money laundering, and tampering with records. And of course, he's denied the charges. If we do not radically reform the current system of law enforcement, which is what is meant by defund the police, then more of this shit is what we will get. 
If we put more police on the streets, you can uh, uh, you can bet then that you will be expanding an existing flawed system, and you can't expect then uh, not to expand the flaws. Defund the motherfucking police. That is the only thing that is going to work. All right, let's go on to the next story. And this one I'm just calling, so we want more of this too. So the prior story showed that some police are actually the cause of increases in serious crime uh, in the communities that they supposedly, quote, serve, end quote. Rather than, and so they are they are causing crime rather than being a deterrent to said crimes. And this next story, or this current story that I'm about to go through shows what the police actually think about those that they serve. So on January the 20, uh, on January the 23, um, uh, 23rd, 23 year old graduate student, uh, Jahavni, uh, Kandula was struck by a police cruiser being driven by officer Kevin Dave, who had been responding to a report of an overdose, overdose per the publication while crossing the street. She was crossing the street at a crosswalk and she later died at the hospital. Now, a video released by the SPD on Monday showed an officer who was identified as Daniel Audrier, vice president of the Seattle Police Officers Guild by the Seattle Times and NPR and KIRTV. The video showed him on a call telling another officer identified as SPOG president Mike Salone what happened and joking about the incident. Quote, she's dead. Ardereer said in the video before laughing. He could also be heard referring to uh, Kandula as just, quote, a regular person, end quote, before saying, yeah, just write the check, $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value, he said. So what what happened here? The police run down uh, a a woman uh, simply crossing the street And because she was brown, the police laugh about it and say that her life was not worth very much at all. If that is how the police feel about the people in the communities they patrol, do you really think that having more of these assholes on the fucking streets is going to result in lower crime? According to the the outlets, uh, Ardereer had been uh, the drug recognition officer assigned to determine whether Dave, the officer that hit the young woman had been under the influence when he hit um, uh, Kandula. And he mentioned in the call that he determined that Dave was going uh, 50 miles an hour, which he said, quote, was, of course, quote, not out of control, end quote, for a driver. (laughs) However, a report released in June revealed that Dave had actually been driving 74 miles an hour in a 25 mile per hour zone when he hit uh, Kandula. Uh, while heading to the emergency call, according to KIRL-TV. The the report said Dave's speed, quote, did not allow him sufficient time to detect, address, and avoid hazards that presented themselves. So not only was this fucking loser laughing about the death of an innocent person and devaluing her life, he also lied to support his fellow dirty cop. Now, I don't want to see more police on the street if this is what they are going to provide and this is their mindset. These are fucking criminals and we do not need to expand them. We need to defund the police. All right, let's go on uh, to the next story. And this one I'm just titling, they're not dead, they're zombies. So my girlfriend and I have been having a friendly debate on whether or not a person that commits a heinous crime is mentally ill. 
My girlfriend's position is that, quote, there has to be something wrong with them, end quote, if they do something that is so horrible that it shocks the conscious. Now, my view is that there are sociopaths and psychopaths in the world, but that is not necessarily necessarily a treatable mental illness. It is what the world generally terms evil, not evil for, of course, from a supernatural perspective, but evil from the perspective of having no empathy, no compassion, no morals. So this next story highlights a little bit about um, what I think the parameters of our debate are. Quote, Lori Vallow Daybell, an Idaho mother convicted of murdering her two youngest children and a romantic rival, was sentenced to life in prison without parole on uh, this past Monday. Vallow Daybell was found guilty in May of killing her children, Joshua J.J. Vallow, who was seven years old, and Tylee Ryan, uh, who was 16 years old, as well as conspiring to kill Tammy Daybell, her fifth husband's previous wife. Valo Daybell will serve three life sentences, one after another, the judge said. So if she gets resurrected by Jesus, which will come into play as we go through this story later, she still has to stay in jail. Her husband, Chad Daybell, is awaiting trial on the same murder charges. So Valo Daybell also faces two other cases in Arizona, one on a charge of conspiring with her brother to kill her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, and one of conspiring to kill her niece's ex-husband. So the evidence showed that this woman was guilty of murder and her husband, number five, is awaiting trial on the same charges. So what was this woman's defense that failed to convince the jury? Well, let's find out. The case made international headlines after the nationwide search for search undertaken for the children, as well as the bizarre details that emerged, including Valo Daybell's claim that her son and daughter were zombies and that she was a goddess sent from uh, sent in to usher the biblical apocalypse. At the Fairmount County Courthouse in St. Anthony, Idaho, Judge Stephen W. Boyce said that the search for the missing children, the discovery of their bodies, and the evidence uh, photos shown in court left law enforcement and jurors traumatized, and he would never be able to get the the images of the slain children out of his head. Val Daybell justified the murders by, quote, going down a bizarre religious rabbit hole, and clearly one you are still down there, end quote, the judge said. On Monday, the court heard testimony from several representatives of the of the victims, including Valo uh, Daybell's only surviving child, uh, Kobe Ryan. Tylee will, quote, Tylee will never have the opportunity to become a mother, wife, or have the career she was destined to be uh, or destined to have. JJ will never be able to grow and spread his light which the in the world in the way that he did, Ryan wrote in the statement read by prosecuting attorney Rob Wood. Quote, my siblings and father deserve so much more than this, end quote. After the victim impact statement, though, Val Daybell, her hair and her signature long waves, addressed the court. She referenced a biblical story in the New Testament about Jesus's response to an adultering woman who authorities believe should be stoned. Quote, Jesus knows me, end quote, she said, beginning to cry, and Jesus understands me. I mourn with all of you who mourn my children and Tammy. Quote, Jesus Christ knows the truth of what happened here, Valo Daybell continued. Jesus Christ knows that no one was murdered in this, in this case. 
accidental deaths happen, suicides happen, fatal side effects from medications happen. So she is trying to say that that her children all died from uh, accidents and the and the other woman she killed was suicide or perhaps um, uh, taking the wrong medication. So Valo Daybell went on to claim that she died while in labor with Ty Lee and her spirit left her body. This experience, she argued, permitted her access to heaven and what she called, quote, the spirit world, end quote. Since her out-of-the-body experience, Valo Daybell claimed that she has had communications with people in heaven, including her sister, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and Jesus Christ himself. She said that she knows for a fact that her children are happy, busy in the spirit world, and Tammy is also very happy and extremely busy. So is this woman crazy? And was she crazy when she committed the crimes? The answer is maybe, but many Christians believe the same shit. And so they believe that they can talk to God. They believe that they have messages from God and missions from God. They may not take it to murder, but they definitely believe that they can hear the voice of God. And many claim to have been taken to heaven. So if you say that she is crazy, then you have to say that the majority of believers are crazy too, which of course I am prepared to say that. All right, let's go on then to this next and last story for this week. And in this particular case, I'm just uh, titling it as Judged by Whom. So for the last several weeks, the final story of the news segment has been titled Just Fucking Us and has been about the justice, how the justice system is not designed to facilitate justice for black people. This week, there's a change um, as we're not talking about the justice system, but the theme remains, which is the systemic nature of white supremacy based oppression. In this case, the oppression could be labeled a microaggression, but it is still evidence of systemic oppression nonetheless. And here's the story from Grio, the, the Grio, a black news site. Quote, for generations, the black community reinforced, uh, reinforced relating to the lyrics and musings of our artists with evolving colloquial phrases. Whether it's Smokey Robinson writing, my smile is my makeup I wear since my breakup, or Inspector Deck uh, spitting Socrates' philosophy and hypothesis can't define how I be dropping these mockeries. And fans give feedback of approval ranging from that's deep preach to that's a bar. Unfortunately, our communicative uh, executions between each other have been relegated as uncouth, lowbrow, or even ignorant by perpetrators of uh, or subscribers to the doctrine that props up whiteness and white language as superior. To be clear, now, and that was the article that I was reading from, but to be clear, language um, is language. And in the U.S., we speak English. But communication is something different. It's not necessarily about language. We use language to communicate, but we also use dialect, intonation, and slang, which are all appropriate if they clarify your message to the intended audience. The way I speak to my boys is not the same way that I speak to my corporate colleagues because I change my approach to be understood by the audience that I am uh, uh, addressing. But the author continues, enter Jan Werner. Werner, co-founder of Rolling Stones magazine, recently spoke with New York Times about his new book, quote, The Masters, a collection of extensive interviews 
that he did with seven legendary rock musicians. Bono of YouTube, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, John Lennon of the Beatles, Pete Townsend of The Who, and Bruce Springsteen. The interviewer, David Marchese, addressed a passage in the intro of the book, The Masters, in which Werner stated that he didn't include any black or female subjects because they didn't fit into his zeitgeist. When Marchese asked him to elaborate, Werner replied that black and female artists were not as articulate and philosophical when it came to describing their life and artistry. Quote, I read interviews with them. I listened to their music, Warner said. I mean, look at what Pete Townsend was writing about or Jagger, any of them. They were deep things about a particular generation, a particular spirit, a particular attitude about rock and roll. Not that the others weren't, but these were the ones that could really articulate it, end quote. Now, when Marchese challenged Werner, he doubled down, saying that black artists like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, among, along with female artists like Joni Mitchell and Janis Joplin, never conveyed the articulation that he was looking for. Quote, the sexual selection was intuitive. It was what I was interested in. You know, just for the public relations sake, maybe I should have gone out and found one black and one woman artist to include here that didn't measure up to that same historical standard just to avert this kind of criticism, which I get it. I had a chance to do that. Maybe I'm too old fashioned. I don't give a fuck or whatever, end quote. Now, Warner's thoughts are a microsm of Rolling Stone's unspoken etiquette uh, or etiquette since he and Ralph Gleason founded the magazine in 1967. They cover black artists for obligatory reasons when they get too big to ignore. Rock and roll as a genre was created by black people, just as was jazz, hip hop, and in every case, Johnny-come-lately white people have scooped in to claim the glory. Werner's ideology is based on a white supremacist perspective. White men are the best at everything because they are smarter than everyone else. We saw this in sports when every position where blacks had few roles that they would say that that those roles required thinking and the roles where where blacks were prominent that only required physical ability. Warner is a racist. His book is racist. And though this bitch later apologized and was fired from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame committee, he should not be listened to or interviewed by anyone. My response to Warner's apology is, quote, fuck you, bitch, end quote. Is that articulate enough for you? All right, that is it for the news this week. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment. This shit is for us. This shit is for us, where each week I provide you with uh, information that comes from me, a black man, that is intended for my black brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean if you're that if you're not black, you have to skip it. Please feel free to listen to it, and if you have any questions, send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com. Now, one of the topics that came up for me recently as I reviewed the content. Um, Uh, for this section was the tendency of various groups to compare and contrast their experiences of oppression to other groups. 
and I get that this is a natural thing, uh, but to, uh, to, but it generally turns out to be unhelpful as it ignores the sources uh, or the source of the oppression and simply wallows in, quote, uh, one-upmanship as one uh, group uh, says that they suffered more than another group. Now, even though that is true, um, I'm going to address something this week that on the surface might uh, seem as if I'm doing the same thing. And what I want to address is a concept of chattel slavery and how it dehumanized the black community. And so I am calling uh, the segment um, of the show this week, When People Become Things. So um, I don't do this, uh, that is review chattel slavery. Uh, I don't do it to compare the suffering uh, that black people went through to any other group, uh, but instead to counter the false narrative that slavery has always existed and was no worse for blacks than it was for any other enslaved group, because that's not true. Chattel slavery was much more dehumanizing uh, and brutal than any other prior forms of slavery, and specifically it came about after the concept of race was created for the express purpose of dehumanizing black people so as to convert us from men and women to mere tools to be used to create white progress and wealth. Now, before we get started, let's just define chattel slavery. Um, And chattel slavery is, quote, the enslaving and owning of human beings and their offspring as property, able to be bought, sold, and forced to work without wages, as distinguished from other systems of force, unpaid, or low-wage labor, also considered to be slavery, end quote. So chattel slavery is perpetual and inherited, and with chattel slavery, the only way for a person to be free uh, is either to escape or for that freedom to be granted by his or her so-called owner. So as you can see, this type of slavery was for the most part confined to people of African descent. Now, I'm going to use excerpts from a website called the Low Country Digital History Initiative, or LDHI. The study starts off with a bit of history, quote, various forms of slavery, servitude, and coerced human labor existed throughout the world before the development of the transatlantic slave trade in the 16th uh, century, or as historian David um, Eltis uh, explains, quote, Almost all peoples have been both slave and slaveholders at some point in their histories, end quote. Still earlier, coerced labor systems in the Atlantic world generally differed in terms of scale, legal status, and racial definitions from the transatlantic chattel slavery system that developed and shaped the New World societies from the 16th century to the 19th centuries, end quote. Now, before the so-called Atlantic slave trade, uh, slavery was rarely for life and individuals were not born into slavery. Slaves were a result of conquest, like prisoners of war or indentured servitude, slavery due to debt. In most of these systems uh, of slavery at that time, the slave would be freed either after a specified period of time or after the debt was paid. In addition, slaves, um, though they were views, viewed as outsiders, they were not viewed as proto or subhuman beings. 
Now, the rise of plantation agriculture um, as central to Atlantic world economies from the 16th to 19th centuries led to a uh, led to a generally more extreme system of chattel slavery. In this system, human beings became movable commodities bought and sold in mass numbers across significant geographic distances, and their status could be shaped by concepts of racial inferiority and passed on to their descendants. The New World plantations also generally required greater levels of exertion than earlier labor systems so that slaveholders could produce a profit within competitive transatlantic markets. Now, what this means is that chattel slavery was an artificial structure that was invented to solve a particular problem. That problem was how to legally and morally justify the oppression of one group of humans to the social, political and economic benefit of another. To do this, first race was created. Race was created to separate one group of humans from another, that is to otherize an entire group of people. But separation was not by itself sufficient. A hierarchy had to be created and white people placed at the top of that hierarchy with black people at the bottom of it. But even that was not enough to justify the inhuman treatment required to completely subjugate uh, a group uh, that they felt, that is, that the white world felt was necessary to build white wealth at the expense of black people. Thus, it was also necessary to dehumanize black people, to say that they were not just a subspecies of human, but that they are a lesser or subordinate form of human. Subhuman, a, a, a creature not much better than a horse or an ox in their minds. So then the article or the paper goes on uh, to slavery in the Americas. In the centuries before the arrival of European explorers, diverse American Indian groups lived in a wide range of social structures. Many of these social political structures included different forms of slavery or coerced labor based on enslaving prisoners of war between con uh, conflicting groups, enforcing slavery within the class hierarchy of an empire, or forced tribute payments of goods or labor to demonstrate submission to a leader. However, like West and Central African slavery, American Indian slavery generally functioned within a more fluid kinship system in contrast to what later developed in the New World. Ultimately, the practice of slavery as an oppressive and exploitative labor system was prevalent in both West Africa and the Americas long before the influence of the Europeans. Still, the factors that define the social, political, and economic purpose and scale of slavery significantly changed expanded and intensified with the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and the American plantation agriculture launched by European expansion. For these reasons, African and American Indian slavery before the transatlantic slave trade differed significantly from chattel slavery systems that would later develop in the Atlantic world. So all that is to say that slavery in Africa before the transatlantic slave trade was similar to slavery that existed among the indigenous people of the Americas at the time. But the nature of slavery changed greatly once the concept of race and genetic inferiority were created for the express purpose uh, of the complete and total oppression of a people. That is, before humans were uh, transformed into things, into mere tools of wealth for white people. 
So going on back to the article, before the New World expansion, concepts of race and racial hierarchies did not define who could and could not be enslaved in Western Europe. Instead, the spread of Christianity in the early Middle Ages from the 5th to the 10th centuries marked the boundaries of slavery throughout Europe. Historian David Brion Davis argues that the Judeo-Christian belief in a monotheistic God who rose over a homogeneous group of people eventually served to prevent European Christians from enslaving one another. Now, I think that that needs to be explained it, it be, I could, because I don't want it to seem that Christianity is, was proposed to be against slavery. What this is saying is that prior to the expansion of slavery in the Americas, slavery was not about race. It was about uh, the, the things that we talked about, like conquest and debt. Christianity dampened the justification for one Christian to a slave another, uh, even for uh, conquest or debt, but it did not dampen the justification to enslave non-Christians. So going back to the article, the article then talks about the Crusades and says that in response to those conflicts, a series of fifth uh, century, uh, 15th uh century popes argued for the enslavement of non-Christians as, quote, an instrument of Christian conversion, end quote. According to church law, Christians were protected from slavery, but Muslims, infidels, and non-Christian pagans were acceptable to enslave. Similarly, similarly, in Islamic law, only non-Muslims could be enslaved. While the Jewish populations living in Christian-dominated Western Europe were protected from slavery in the Middle Ages, widespread anti-Semitic prejudice among European Christians led uh, to Jews' persecution, exile, violent massacres, and even accusation uh, of uh, causing the Black Death. Thus, rather than curtailing slavery, religions exacerbated, exacerbated it by providing it with divine justification. According to all religions, they were just doing uh, other groups a favor by enslaving them because that was the only way those groups would be able to come to know the true God. In the New World, the criteria for enslavement increasingly shifted from non-Christian to non-European. As Europeans began to emphasize religions, racial and ethnic differences between themselves and American Indians and Africans, this boundary moved further from non-European to non-white, particularly to enable the enslavement of black Africans and their African-American descendants. So here we begin to see the combination of greed and religious intolerance that were factors that created the atmosphere for chattel slavery. This was not an idea born of reason. It was an evil machination to justify the theft of labor and the dehumanization of black people and to give white people justification for doing whatever the fuck they wanted with our ancestors. This, of course, included forced labor, but it also included the rape of minors, the breaking up and the selling of families, torture, murder, uh, humiliation, and degradation. Black humans were treated as property, but really less than property. We were treated as an expendable commodity, and if we were used up in the service of white ambition, oh well, just go buy another one. And then getting back to the paper, the recovery of classical Greek texts before and during the European Renaissance also provided philosophical and theological justification for a Christian social hierarchy that included slavery. 
For example, the Greek philosopher Aristotle produced writings about slavery that influenced prominent Christian theologians like Thomas Aquinas in the 19th century and later provided legal and moral justifications for implementing slavery based upon racial hierarchy in the 16th century. Aristotle argued that the master and the slave relationship was natural and that some were marked out for subjugation and others for rule. Aquinas built on Aristotle's argument to assert that the slave was a physical instrument of his owner. This condition allowed a slave owner to claim everything his or her slaves possess and produce, including their children. Aquinas attributed the plight of the enslavement to the sin and the inevitable conditions of a sinful world. Other theologians before and during the Renaissance emphasized Aristotle's belief in a natural order, but asserted that some men were slaves by their very nature. Based on this evolving theology, European Christians initially saw non-Christians as, quote, natural slaves, end quote. With New World expansion, however, Europeans came to primarily associate Africans with the institution of slavery. To explain this racial shift from a Judeo-Christian worldview, 16th and 17th century theologians merged Aristotle's theory of natural slaves with the biblical curse of Ham. According to this interpretation, Africans are the descendants of Ham and Canaan, who Noah cursed into slavery for Ham's transgression. Ham is Noah's son and Canaan's father. So again, the desire to oppress and enslave came first then the justification, and in this case, the justification was biblical. Chattel slavery could not have been created without the expressed agreement of the Christian faith. Even the rape of a child was justified because the child was a brute anyway, and therefore there was no sin in the mind of the Christian rapist. Now, initially, the religious practiced the religions practiced by the indigenous populations in Africa and the Americas provided adequate European justification for their capture and enslavement. But what happened when Africans or American Indians converted to Christianity? To avoid religious exemptions, European slaveholders in the New World justified the enslavement of non-Europeans by constructing the concept of a white European race as separate and superior to non-Europeans. European legal, military, and religious support for slavery based upon racial hierarchies allowed a long-term coerced labor force in the Americas, and Europeans could use the myth of white superiority to avoid their own enslavement. European concepts of conquest combined religious prejudice and stereotypes of physical and mental inferiority to justify subjugation as a civilizing force. These conquest ideologies took on a major economic purpose with the New World expansion when Europeans used physical and religious differences to justify the large-scale enslavement of Africans and displacement of African-American Indians for labor and land control in plantations and mines. Notably, as the economic incentives for subjugation increased, European racial stereotypes about Africans became more derogatory. Now, what this means is that the desire to steal labor and land was the impetus to creating white supremacy, which was used to justify slavery. It wasn't that blacks were always considered inferior. To the contrary, in the ancient world, they were viewed as just as capable as any other race and in some cases better. But when whites saw that their desire for wealth could only be realized by forced labor and taking land, they needed a reason to oppress people of color, and they invented white supremacy to justify it. 
So with the rise of African American uh, or African slavery in the New World, Europeans shifted these stereotypes to support a racial hierarchy where Africans and African Americans were depicted as animalistic, servile, unintelligent, and sexually promiscuous. As Berlin explains, quote, the nature of slavery, the relationship of black and white determined the character of racial ideals, end quote. New World racism developed to justify New World slavery. Over time, this racial boundary of white superiority and the belief that Africans and African uh, and American Indians belong to inferior races grew to influence European social, political, legal, and labor systems throughout the Atlantic world societies. Now, though, and the article says, though I say outside of religion, the or the first big, or though I say, uh, that they say, though they say outside of religion, the first big lie was that of genetic inferiority based on the color of one's skin. But the truth is that that was a constructed lie. Those that invented the concept of white supremacy did not believe it, but they wanted to oppress black people and other people of color to increase their wealth. Chattel slavery was needed to oppress people and white supremacy was needed to justify that oppression. And the glue that held the whole thing together was religion. So though the institution of slavery has long been a part of human history, the article says European Western expansion, New World plantation, agriculture, and the transatlantic slave trade all tie to this ancient coerced labor system to, or, or, uh, to new extremes of economic profit, oppressive racial categories, and intensive labor, re- labor regimes. Despite the dehumanizing experience of American chattel slavery from the 16th to the 19th century, enslaved people have consistently resisted the terms of their status and generated their own social, political, and spiritual and cultural identities. They also challenged and defied the false racial beliefs used to justify their status and demanded access to the developing rights and freedoms that they that had been reserved mainly for the elite Europeans and European Americans in the New World, i.e. white. The extremes of chattel, chattel slavery in the Americas made the ideals and benefits of indi- individual freedom apparent, particularly to those that were enslaved. So in other words, what the article is saying is that because people, enslaved people, were able to see the wealth and freedom that those uh, who held slave had, they knew that that freedom was possible, and therefore they were willing to fight for it. So though chattel, I, I will end with this, though chattel slavery has ended, um, the ideologies that produced it have not. And that is the reason that our resistance against white supremacy must continue. The forces of white supremacy are still used today to oppress black people to the social, political, and economic benefit of the white race. The drivers for white supremacy and its accompanying oppression are still greed and lust for power. So though we intellectually know what it means to be free, as the passage above said, none of us have experienced true freedom. We need to continue the fight until we are all free because if one of us is enslaved and even mentally, then we are all enslaved. All right, that is it for this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have a Bible lesson with Bible Study with Atheist Mike. Welcome back and welcome to the segment Bible Study with Atheist Mike, where our text for today is the logic 
of the illogical. So let's get to it. Because um, the topics I generally search for when preparing uh, for this segment of the podcast, uh, because because of the topics that I typically use when I'm searching, Google thinks that I'm a Christian and always prioritize pro-Christian articles for whatever I search for. So this week I was searching for the relationship between logical fallacies and Christian apologetics, but all I got were websites and articles justifying religious belief. I then tried to use Bing's AI chat feature, and based on the prompt that I crafted to make sure that I got what I was looking for, I literally got a reply from the AI that said it was not going to give that information to me. Literally. Literally, it said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to help you with that. So I finally used a combination of um, result pages from Google searches that were way down the list, like eight or nine pages down. And I also used ChatGPT to create this week's Bible study. So the lesson this week is about how believers try to use pseudo-logic to justify what they believe, but every one of their apologetics is based on logical fallacies. And I'm going to use uh, some information also from an article on uh, the Atheist Alliance International website um, in order to go through the lesson today. But before we get started, I want to define both apologetics and logical fallacies. So at a high level, an apologetic is a structured argument in defense of a position. Apologetics in Christianity, the it is considered then the intellectual defense of the truth of the Christian religion, and is usually considered a branch of theology. And so thus, that is the reason why I am uh, titled or have titled the lesson for today, The Logic of the Illogical, because an apologetic is supposed to be a reasoned or logical um, uh, defense of the truth of Christianity. But in fact, I would say that it is illogical because it's based on logical fallacies. So what is a logical fallacy? A logical fallacy is an argument that may sound convincing or true, but is actually flawed, leading to an unsupported conclusion. So what I am saying in this lesson is that the typical arguments for a belief in God are logical fallacies. On the surface, they may appear to be sound, but when you dig into it, none of the arguments hold water. Christian apologetics, the field devoted to the defense of Christian beliefs, often employs various arguments and rhetorical techniques to substantiate its claims. However, a closer examination reveals that many of those arguments are built on logical fallacies. So let's start with an excerpt from the web article written by Richard Hess titled, Why Counter-Apologetics? An Introduction to the Apologetics and Its Methods. So apologetics, again, from the Greek word apologia, meaning speaking in defense, is a system of argumentation in the defense of a religious doctrine from criticism. In Christianity, apologetics has been used since around 100 to 200 CE uh, by the likes of Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen to, uh, to the many apologists defending Christianity today, like Peter Kreft, Ravi Zacharias, and John Lennox. However, most Christian scholars claim that apologetics can be found in the New Testament with Paul. 
Nonetheless, after centuries of developing these defenses in an attempt to strengthen their ramparts from advancing scientific knowledge, these arguments have become more sophisticated, more convoluted. The antiques, that is, the older uh, apologetics like Aquinas' uh, Aquinas' Five Ways, Anselm's ontological argument, and St. Augustine's doctrine on free will are all still in use today, but have all received a fresh coat of paint to give them a new look. Alvin uh, uh, Plantiga took the ontological argument and restructured it through modal logic. William Lane Craig simply repackaged the Kalam cosmological argument with his smiling face on the with his filing, smiling face on the box. And other well-known arguments like the theological argument have been retailored with just enough scientific stitching to give it a prima facie look of credibility, while others such as the moral argument have remained pretty much stagnant. So if you're not familiar with apologetics, with the apologetics that are mentioned above, we'll get into the details of some of them. Uh, but for now, just know that today's apologetics are not new. They are regurgitated remnants of an arguments from the past that have already been dis- disproven and debunked. Now, while these arguments are satisfactory to believers in sheltering their sacred documents, they are wholly unconvincing convincing to non-believers. Which, surprisingly, is okay with the apologists because it is not about converting non-believers, but keeping believers from succumbing to doubt. Apologetics serve one purpose and one purpose only, to protect their religious beliefs from criticism. Apologetics is not about finding truth or contemplating difficult questions. That challenge that are, are contemplating difficult questions that challenge their faith It doesn't even try to do that, but rather to look for workarounds from such challenges. Just see that William Lane Craig, arguably the most well-known apologist today, had to say about doubt in an interview. And so this is a quote from William Lane Craig, who is one of the more prominent uh, uh, Christian apologists today. Quote, if in some historical contingent circumstance, and this is William Lane Crane speaking, so let me restart. If in some historical contingent circumstance, the evidence that I have available to me should turn against Christianity, I don't think that that converts the the witness of the Holy Spirit. In such a situation, I would regard that as simply a result of the contingent circumstance that I am in, and and that if I were to pursue this within due diligence and with the time, I would have, I would discover that in fact the evidence, uh, if I could get the correct picture, would support exactly what the witness of the Holy Spirit tells me, end quote. So that was a lot. But in other words, what William Lane Craig, again, who is one of the most prominent Christian apologists today, is saying is that even if he were convinced by evidence or facts that what he believed about Christianity was not true, it would not change his belief in the least. He is saying that if he were convinced by the logic of an argument that God did not exist as an example, instead of changing his belief, he would simply com- continue to believing in the hopes that if that that if he had enough time, he would eventually uncover a counter argument that would support his position. But even if it didn't, he would not change. This is the nature of apologetics. 
that they are non-falsifiable. That is why it is a complete fucking waste of time to argue with the believer because no matter what you say and what points you make, they will never change their mind. Now, the art, going back to the article, it, they state, this speaks volumes about the integrity of apologetics as a system. The refusal to at least consider evidence against their presupposed conclusions is pure intellectual dishonesty. Dishonesty. Po- apologetics artificially satisfies the vanity of the human ego that needs to feel vindicated, right, and confident, and serves to ally the fears of the uncertain, unknowing, and doubt that threaten to be Uh, belief-breaking challenges. Apologetics merely gives the veneer of having considered these problems and have answered them, and unsurprisingly, all the answers seem to lead to God. Then uh, next here, the author addresses the structure of apologetics. Naturally, naturally, we find that apologetics is fraught with serious problems. The very fact that apologetics is even necessary raises huge red, red flags as it, it relates to the legitimacy of the religion. But it's when they when they've pressed and are unable to provide de, uh, demonstrations for their predetermined conclusions that we see arguably the most disturbing truth about the apologetic method. The apologist is willing to destroy reason altogether rather than relinquish their faith. And this has been the truth from the throughout history, from Martin Luther, who stated that, quote, reason is the devil's greatest whore, to William Lane Craig, who was quoted earlier. This is no trivial matter. This is the single biggest problem I have with apologetics and why I say they are so dangerous. When the faith usurps reason, people can and will do terrible things. But it isn't limited to a few apologists. It goes far beyond that. For a religion to survive, it needs followers, generations of them. And this is something that I personally encounter on a regular basis. In many cases, when I'm discussing or debating a belief uh, or debating belief with a believer, that they will tell me, quote, I'm too logical. They will tell me that they don't need logic and therefore they do not need uh, the apologist either because the apologist seeks to give a rational reason to believe in God. But most Christians don't need or even want that. They are willing, as the author states, to destroy reason and logic to keep their faith. They will contort logic into an unrecognizable simile of itself in order to maintain their faith. Therefore, no logic or reason, however sound, will ever persuade them, and any fallacy, no matter how apparent, will encourage them uh, if it supports their already held, sincerely held belief. Now, going back to the article, most average everyday believers have never heard of these apologists, and yet their influences can be heard in the arguments raised by the common street preacher or, quote, the internet theologian, end quote. It also seems as if they haven't encountered any of the philosophical counterarguments against them. Otherwise, they wouldn't hold such confidence in them when they, when, as they are being knocked, uh, knocked down arguments to which no rebuttal can be made uh, by, uh, by an atheist. That's the way they present them, uh, but that's not true. So how many of you have been in a discussion with a common Christian and they throw out one of the aforementioned apologetic defenses only to find that they have little uh, more than a cursory understanding of it? I, for me, many times. Nowadays, with the internet, any believer can access countless websites dedicated to the defense of their religion, and they can get a pre-written script for them to recite without having to research any further. 
These defenses are also incorporated into sermons and taught in layman terms by religious leaders, all with the singular purpose of protecting religion from modern scientific understanding and the shift in societal thought that comes with it. The sophisticated apologetic arguments or theologians uh, and Christian philosophers are largely reduced to sound bites and bumper stickers. As a as the Bible itself, most Christians uh, as the Bible, most Christians do not read the Bible, and even those that do have a tendency to concentrate on what uh, Daniel Dennett called the dippities, those passages that sound like they have made a good point until you pull back the covers and realize that there's nothing but nonsensical bullshit there. Things, and I'm speaking of things like faith being the evidence uh, of things hoped for, uh, as an example. And in a past episode, I mentioned uh, my super Christian brother who was trying to use Pascal's wager on me, um, and the way that he used it and his inability to to defend it proved to me that he only had only a cursory understanding of it. Uh, but when I crushed it, it, it did not result in him changing his belief, just like William Lane Craig. Uh, he decided to continue believing anyway. So the author goes on, the paper goes on to say, this is why counter-apologetics must be armed with facts to answer effectively a rebuttal to uh, and to be more accurate. There are countless philosophical rebuttals to apologetics that are sophisticated and robust. Counter-apologetics counters both with philosophy and science as their foundations. A proper understanding of counter-apologetics comes with an understanding of the apologetic of the religious scholar, giving giving the counter-apologist the ability to quickly call out these dubious claims. With their fallacious foundations exposed, the whole argument falls. Without being challenged, religion is free to indoctrinate and impose its will in everyday life. So we want, if we want to normalize atheism and secularism, we need to be able to answer the claims of the apologists and stop the methods of manipulation it employs to take hold of the mind. Okay, so that's the article. And now let's take a look at some specific apologetics and the logical fallacies on which they are based. And this will give you the necessary ammunition to refute these errors in logic so as not to allow the religious lunacy to go unchallenged. So as was mentioned, the cosmological argument, the cosmological argument is based upon the fallacy of special pleading. So the cosmological argument states that everything must have a cause except God, who is uncaused. Now, this is an example of special pleading where an exception is made without adequate justification. In other words, the believer says that everything has a cause except for what he or she believes in. If I say that not everything um, uh, has a cause, uh, then they try to make that sound unreasonable. But if I say, well, then if everything has a cause, then what caused God then they say God required no cause. If God did not require a cause, then these arguments that everything requires a cause is not valid and something uh, else natural in the universe is just as likely or more likely to be the cause of everything else that we see. And specifically the way that I describe it is that the only thing in existence that is eternal that is, that is not requiring a cause is existence itself. That is, there has always been something, otherwise there would be nothing now. Next up is the teleological argument, which the fallacy that supports it is the argument from ignorance. 
So the teleological argument posits that complexity of the universe implies a designer. This isn't an argument from ignorance, presupposing that because we do not fully understand natural mechanisms, they must be designed. This apologetic is also related to the God of the gaps. That is, God is considered to be whatever it is that we cannot fully explain. We humans did not know what the sun was because, and because of its importance, when it was seen in, the, in our early history, we thought that it was a god. But once astrology, uh, astrology explained the sun and no one believed then that the sun was god. Every advance in science pushes the belief in God to a smaller and smaller part of the universe. The concept of intelligent design is based on the teleological argument and is an argument from ignorance simply because we do, that is to say, that simply because we do not know uh, yet everything there is to know about the existence of a universe, that is no reason to jump to the unfounded conclusion that it was created by a super being. That is an argument from ignorance. And then we go to Pascal's wager. And the uh, idea here of the fallacy is a false dichotomy. And this is the argument that my brother tried to use on me. And so Pascal's wager asserts that one should believe in God as a, quote, safe bet, end quote, to avoid an eternal punishment. And this argument presents a false dichotomy, ignoring the other religious and philosophical arguments and or options. So the argument states that if you believe in God and it turns out that you are wrong, you lose very little. Uh, but if you don't believe in God and it turns out that you're wrong, then you will lose uh, all and spend the rest of your eternity in a torturous hell. The false dichotomy part of it is that there are literally tens of thousands of gods, and even within a particular belief in God like Christianity, there are thousands of variants. And most of those are mutually exclusive. So like I told my brother at the time when he tried to use that argument against me, if you believe in Jesus and Islam turns out to be true, then you are in just as much trouble as I am when I don't, and I don't believe in any gods. There is another component, though, uh, to this uh, that isn't based upon the false dichotomy, and that is that you can, you can force someone to change what they believe based on fear. Because even if I believe that if I was wrong about God, I would go to hell— because I don't believe that does not cause any fear, so therefore there's no motivation for me to change. I don't believe in hell, and so I can't become, I can't force myself to believe in hell simply because that if it turns out to be true, hell would be a really, really bad thing. I don't believe it, and no form of, of self-fear is going to make me believe it. Next up is the moral argument, and this is the fallacy of begging the question. So the moral argument claims that the that objective moral values exist, therefore God must exist to set those values. This argument begs the question by assuming the existence of ob objective moral values that need a defined source or a divine source. This is another apologetic that my white Christian nationalist brother, and yes, he is black, used in our discussion when we were talking about morals uh, and he was asking me where mine came from. So I ask him, if you did not believe in God, that doesn't mean that you would start raping and pillaging the world, would it? And his response to me was, yes, I would. To me, that says more about his character uh, than it is a justification for believing in God. I am an atheist and I do not drink, use drugs or cheat on my girlfriend. And I know a lot of believers that do all those things. Hell, most weeks, the news I cover includes a pastor doing despicable things. 
So in closing, while Christian apologetics seeks to prove or provide a rational explanation for faith, it often falls into the trap of logical fallacies. The reliance on such fallacies undermines the integrity of the arguments and calls into question the rational basis of the belief system that it defends. By acknowledging and addressing these logical inconsistencies, both believers and skeptics can engage in a more meaningful discourse which, if engaged in honestly, would lead to the elimination of faith as a valid epistemology. You cannot know anything through faith. And if something is illogical or based on logical fallacies, it should be discarded and replaced with critical thinking and the scientific method. All right, that is it for this week's Bible study and sadly for the overall episode this week. So we'll take a quick quick break. And when we come back, We'll close out the episode for this week. All right, welcome back. And to close out this week, I want to talk about a story that I'm calling the power behind the throne. So in many cases, we evaluate power systems, uh, and we only see those that are in front of the power. Uh, That is, we see the front of the power structure, and we rarely notice that there are those that are in the back. Uh, But if we really want to influence that power, we need to know those that control access to and generate the strategy for that power. So case in part, um, an article for The Root titled, The Brother You Need to Know in the White House. So here's the article, quote, you don't know Steve Benjamin. He's the indispensable brother in the Biden administration, the man you need to know if you need to know. He is his title is senior advisor to the president of the United States, but he describes his role as, quote, the front door of the administration. But a more apt description is that he is the front, the side and the back door uh, and the black door of the administration. Got a problem with what the president did or what he said? Wonder why he backed what he backed? Call Steve, uh, director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. When the 2020 election rolled into South Carolina, Benjamin didn't endorse Biden. He endorsed a fellow mayor, New York's Mike Bloomberg. But Biden won the South Carolina primary. The Democratic Party presidential nominee and, of course, now the president, uh, as, as he filled out his executive staff, the president didn't hold any grudges. He had his chief of staff, uh, Jen Zeitz, uh, reach out to Benjamin. Quote, when the president calls you to serve, you serve, Benjamin said. The opportunity to serve the American people at scale and to be in the room when decisions are made, this has really appeared to be a great opportunity to make a big difference at a time when it mattered most, end quote. End quote. And there is more work to do, uh, and Benjamin is just getting started. Quote, every day I try to approach this job as just a blessing, he said. Every single day I come in here and think about the sacrifices of men and women, not just the ones we know, uh, know of and celebrate around the March on Washington or around the King holiday or Black History Month, but those unnamed Black folks whose names will never be in lights and the sacrifices it took to help us get here and to have the privileges of serving. I try to lean into those better angels of our nature and just serve. It is a blessing, end quote. Now, I'm glad that there is someone within the power structure of the White House that has our interest in mind. 
I am sure that Mr. Benjamin could have made a lot more money in private practice, but he is working on behalf of the American people and on behalf of us as black people as well. All right, that is it for the closing and it for the episode this week. I'd like to remind you the intro music is Transcend by K.I.R.K. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and a bunch of other platforms. But if it's not on the platform where you typically get your podcast, send an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll be sure to get it added. Once it's there, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if it is a feature of your platform, leave me a five-star review. And I leave you with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want the rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.